We'll have two readings today. The first will be from 2 Kings, chapter 22, verses 1 to 13. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshullam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest and make him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Make them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple, and make these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also make them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them, because they are acting faithfully. Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Achim son of Shaphan, Achbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. The second reading today is from 2 Corinthians 7. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we were not harmed in any, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. 
See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Do please keep that second reading in 2 Corinthians 7 open, if you would. Let's pray as we uh, consider it together. God, our Father, we ask that you would give me grace to speak faithfully and you'd give us grace to hear with trusting obedience what you speak to us in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, at the end of this morning's Bible passage in 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says to a church, the church in Corinth, I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. How can you tell when a church is in good shape? I've just been in Ireland at the Irish Preachers Conference. Lots of conversations between ministers, pastors. How is your church? What is it in good shape? Are you encouraged? Do you have confidence in them? It's a natural question. If you're not as yet a Christian, you may be thinking, how do I pick a good church to go and see if I want to find out about Christianity? One that's in good shape, that's spiritually fit and healthy. I suppose the obvious markers are things like, are the buildings in good nick? What say, if you want to probe a bit more deeply, what about the budgets? Is there a good staff team? What are the musicians like? What about the preaching? Is there a buzz? Do do you go there and feel a bit of, you know, trumpets and drums kind of thing? Is it that kind of church? Those are the sort of obvious things you might, you might say, you know, I go, I went to this church and clearly it was in good shape. I, I have confidence and I'm sure that the ministers can have confidence in it. There's a, a, an American website called Nine Marks, a marks of a healthy church. I can never quite remember what they are, but I think they're good. Um, but I want to, I want to suggest to you from this Bible passage a mark that I've not come across before, either in those nine marks or anywhere else. And it's a surprising and paradoxical mark of a healthy church. And in a word, it is sorrow. It's a church where the ministers are glad when the people are sad. And you say to me, oh, come on, that must be some kind of a slightly sick joke. How is your 
you know, minister talking to another minister on Monday, how was your Sunday, was great. I had an absolute whale of a time. They were all so sad. (laughs) Have a look at the passage, because it's a strange and paradoxical passage. Notice, if you will, the theme of joy. So verse 4, Paul says... Uh, in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Then if you glance on to verse 7, my joy was greater than ever. And then verse 9, now I'm happy. And then verse 13, uh, how happy Titus was, halfway through verse 13. And then verse 16, I'm glad There's a tremendous theme of gladness and happiness. But notice alongside that the theme of sorrow. So verse 7, he told us about, in the middle of verse 7, your deep sorrow. Verse 8, I caused you sorrow. Verse 9, you were made sorrow, uh, you were made sorry. It's quite a lot of sorry, you were sorrowful. Verse 11, godly sorrow. Verse 15, you received him with fear and trembling. See, here is a strange passage which signs the music of joy and gladness and happiness alongside the music of sorrow and sadness and fear and so on. The background is, 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 is quite complicated. Uh, in, in, before Christmas, uh, we were preaching through in the mornings in, in church the beginning of this second letter to the Corinthians, the first um, six chapters, and we're picking that up again now. And if you've studied this, you'll know that the story of the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth is quite a complicated jigsaw. I'm not sure I've ever really understood it. We've got two letters in the New Testament. There was at least one other letter. Um, there were some visits. There may have been some other visits. And it's really quite complicated to work out what was happening. Um, if, if you're unsure and you really want to know, ask Matt. Because I don't know. But I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the, the, the key things, the two key things we need to know to understand this um, passage. The first is looking back to the past... And it's that the, the, the history of the Apostle Paul's relationship with the church has been difficult and troubled. And in particular, the church has turned against him in the past. It may be that somebody's come in from outside and has, 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 has sort of dissed Paul, has accused him of being unreliable and bossy and untrustworthy. And you get various hints in the letter uh, where he has to defend himself. Somebody's accused him of, 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 of not being the kind of church leader you'd want to follow. And the church has been swayed by that and have been have turned against him. And he's had to write them a very difficult letter. He calls it a painful letter in verse 8 of our passage, one that caused them pain. So that's the one, the first thing we need to know, that it's been a troubled history. The other thing that's worth knowing, particularly for next week and the week after, is that Paul is warming up for a money ask. And it's never easy to do a money ask. It's particularly not easy to do a money ask when your relationship with the church where you're doing the ask is is troubled and difficult. And that's what's happening. 
So that's where we are. We're warming up for a money ask, and we'll get to it next week. I want us to notice that this chapter 7 is bounded at the beginning and then the end by basically cheerfulness. Just glance back, if you will, at chapter 6, verse 11. So we can pick up the, 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 the letter and see where we are. Chapter 6, verse 11. Paul says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We've opened our hearts wide to you. We've been straight and open-hearted with you. We're not withholding our affection from you. We love you, but you're withholding yours from us. And so in verse 13, he says, as a fair exchange, speaking as to my children, open wide your hearts also. It's an appeal to open their hearts to the Apostle Paul because they've been troubled and they've closed them. From chapter 6, verse 14, through to chapter 7, verse 1, Paul explains, I think, that opening their hearts to him means turning from sin. He is Christ's apostle, and to open their hearts to him means turning from sin. In chapter 7, verse 2, he comes back to this. Make room for us in your hearts. You see that same appeal. Open your hearts to us. Because we're trustworthy, verse 2, we we haven't wronged anyone, we haven't corrupted anyone, we haven't exploited anyone, we've been accused of those things, but we're innocent, you can trust us. I'm not saying this to condemn you, Um, I I really love you, verse 3, you've got such a place in our hearts, we'd live or die with you. If things are going well, we're on top of the world, if things are going badly with you, it's as though we die with you, we really go through it, we care about you. But verse 4, I've got confidence in you, great confidence. I take pride in you. I'm encouraged. And in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. And he's about to tell us why. And then at the end of the chapter, in verse 16, he says, I've got complete confidence in you. And what this chapter answers, therefore, I take it, is the question, how does he know he can have confidence in them? What is the mark of a healthy church that the apostle says, I can see From this mark amongst you, I can see from evidence of this amongst you, that I can have confidence in you. Now, it's one mark. I'm going to divide it in three, because I think it'll be easiest for us to follow the chapter through. But the three points I'm going to make are really three facets of the same mark. And the mark is sorrow. But we need to see what kind of sorrow. So first, verses 5 to 7. Uh, A church is healthy when it shows a sorrowing return to apostolic loyalty. A return to apostolic loyalty, a sorrowing return to apostolic loyalty. So verse 5, 4, here's the reason I'm joyful. Here's the reason I know you're in good shape. When we, Paul and his, perhaps his companions, came into Macedonia... That's further north from Corinth. Corinth is in, a, in Achaia, uh, the main part of Greece today. Macedonia is further north. We came into Macedonia. That's where the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, were some of the other churches he founded. We came into Macedonia to visit those churches, and we had no rest. Paul has said back in chapter 2 that he came to Troas, the old Tro- Troy, and had no rest. And he, this is, so they went on to Macedonia, and still he had no rest. And he says, verse 5, we were harassed. 
We had conflict outside, whether it was persecution or troubles of some kind, objectively outside, and we had fears within. We couldn't sleep, we were troubled, we were restless, we were anxious. About what? Well, we'll learn what he was anxious about when we learn how he was comforted. But God, who comforts the downcast, a wonderful description of of God, the true God, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus, one of Paul's most trusted long-term missionary companions. And not only by his coming, but by the comfort you had given him. Titus had visited Corinth, this church where there'd been this painful bust-up. And he, 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 he finds Paul now. Paul, Paul was looking for him earlier and he couldn't find him in Troas in chapter 2. But now he says, he, 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 he came to us in Macedonia. And, and, and you can imagine the conversation, Titus, I'm so glad to see you. How is the church in Corinth? What state are they in? I care about them. I love them. I pray for them. I can't sleep if I'm worried about them. What is their state? And Paul said, uh, Titus said, they gave me great comfort. And specifically, Titus said this, look at the passage. He told us about your longing for me. That is longing to see me. If you've had a bust up and you discover the people you bust up with are longing to see you, it's a good sign, isn't it? It wasn't their dread of seeing me, it was their longing to see me. Titus said, they're longing to see you, they really want to see you. And then he said, Titus told me about your deep sorrow. And in the context, that means sorrow that they had been tricked or lured or seduced into turning against Paul. So they'd had their difficult time, someone had persuaded them Paul wasn't trustworthy, and they turned against him. And now they can see that they were wrong, and they're sorry, deeply sorry. And your ardent concern for me, so my joy was greater than ever. Now here's the thing. This is much bigger than a personal dispute. When Paul planted a church, or built up a church, or visited a church, or taught a church, he did so not as a random individual, or even a random Christian leader, he did so as one of the apostles of Christ. He went there with the authority of Christ himself in a way that was unique for that apostolic band. Nobody can do that today. He went there with the authority of Christ. And therefore, when a church in those days turned away from the apostle, they turned away from Christ. And when they turned back to the apostle, they turned back to Christ. Apostolic loyalty, loyalty to Christ. And, and Paul is very thrilled. One side of this, and sometimes both happen all over the world all the time, a church begins loyal to apostolic truth, loyal to the Bible, loyal to Christ, And then something or somebody comes in and lures or seduces the church away from loyalty to Christ. 
And they begin, it may be a compromise with purity in the matter of sex. It may be a compromise with integrity in the matter of money. It may be a selfishness in lifestyle. There are all manner of ways in which uh, we, we get seduced and, and we turn, as it were, away from the apostles and away from Christ. And the mark of a healthy church is not a church that never goes wrong, or there would be no healthy churches. The mark of a healthy church is a church that, when it sees it's gone wrong, is deeply sorry and turns back in loyalty to the apostle and to apostolic truth, which means to Christ. And that sorrow is a mark of a healthy church. So if you're not a Christian, find a church where the men and women in the church, you you notice sometimes that they are sorry because they're beginning to realize that in their church life they've drifted away from real Christianity. And they're sorry and they want to turn back to real apostolic, authentic Christianity. Don't find a church that's self confident or self-assured or self-righteous or cocky or thinks that they've got it all right. Find a church that is, in the best sense, anxious to make sure that we're constantly turning back to real apostolic truth. And that theme continues in verses 8 to 13. I've called this a sorrowing repentance in response to apostolic rebuke. It's really a continuation of the same thing. Sorrowing repentance in response to apostolic rebuke. So Paul says, verse 8, I, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, the painful letter, the letter that, 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 that made them upset, that hurt them, he says, I don't regret it. Because that's very on PC, isn't it? I mean, in our culture, the, the worst thing you can do is to hurt somebody's feelings. In fact, it's illegal. You know, if I can prove that you've hurt my feelings and offended me, you're in deep trouble, mate. That's that's our culture, isn't it? And Paul says, I hurt your feelings, I, I made you sorry, but I'm not sorry that I made you sorry. So is he being just awkward? He says, I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you. Of course I was sad when I realized you'd been hurt by my letter. But uh, only for a little while. Now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry but because of the kind of sorrow that you showed. And he contrasts two kinds of sorrow here. He says, your sorrow led you to repentance. It was a sorrow that meant you you were sorry, you realized you were wrong, and you changed. And therefore it didn't last. You became sorrowful as God intended. You weren't harmed by us. In fact, we did you good. So godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. This is, this is Paul saying... I hurt your feelings, you were upset when my letter was read out, you were troubled uh, and upset by it, you were sorrowful. But what happened was, although your immediate reaction, no doubt like yours and mine, when somebody points out that I'm wrong or ungodly about something, I bristle, don't you? I immediately spring to my own defense in self-righteousness, but, 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 but. That's my instinct. But thank God they didn't stop there. No doubt they started like that. We all do. But they didn't stop there. 
They went away, they thought about it. And God, by his Spirit, awakened their consciences so that they, as they went away, they, they, they began to think, no, he's right, and I'm wrong. And they were troubled and sorry, but when they realized he's right and I'm wrong, and the truth that he brings me is the truth of God and the truth of Christ, I can imagine maybe in their later meetings they got together and one and another said, you know, I think he's right, and we're wrong. And another one said, yes, you know, I, I was thinking the same, he is right, and we're wrong. And corporately they turned and repented, and uh, it, w- it was a really good thing. There is another kind of sorrow. Here Paul mentions it briefly in verse 10, worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow, Paul says, brings death. Worldly sorrow is where you and I are sorry for the consequences of our sin. Everybody's sorry when, 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 when our sin messes things up. An angry, selfish outburst breaks a relationship. And I'm sorry about the broken relationship. Financial irregularity at work and it gets found out. I'm sorry it's been found out. I'm embarrassed. Sorry if I've lost my promotion, whatever the consequences may be. I'm sorry about the hangover. I'm sorry about the unwanted pregnancy. I'm sorry about the sexually transmitted disease. There are all sorts of consequences of our behavior that everybody's sorry about. And Paul says that's worldly sorry. It's just sorry, sorry. It's just sorry about the consequences. That doesn't lead to a change of life. That leads to death. Leads to bitterness first. And then death. But Paul is saying it's a wonderful thing when the conscience is awakened. A friend of mine, uh, somebody asked him, what happened when you came to Christ? And he says, my conscience was awakened. And I began to realize that the kinds of behavior that I'd always justified to myself were not right and not justifiable. And it's a lovely thing, that. It's a painful thing, but it's a lovely thing. When our children were smaller, they um, had a lot of fun on BMXs. And uh, our oldest son came in one day with most of the gravel from a drive under his skin in his um, leg and uh, thigh and arm and chest. And Actually, there's quite a lot of gravel under his skin. Because um, he, he, he looked at it, he said, cool. Um <laughs> because he, he sort of rather liked it, but we took him off to A&E, I think Carolyn did, and the doctor, I expect, said something like, you know the way doctors do, doctors here, I'm sure you do this, this may hurt a bit. <laughs> you know, beware when a doctor says that. Um, and I'm sure it hurt a lot. But if it was hurting a lot and our son complained, and I don't know if he did, but if he did, I imagine the doctor will have said, yes, okay, it is hurting a bit. The alternative is to get tetanus, gangrene, and have your leg amputated. At which point, I dare say, he would have said, okay, carry on. Worldly sorrow is sorrow for the consequences of sin. Godly sorrow is the sorrow, it's like the pain of a doctor putting it right. And it's a wonderful thing, and it doesn't leave any trace of regret. Verse 10. And you see what it, it did in them. Verse 11. See what it's produced in you, says Paul. Earnestness. 
eagerness to clear yourselves. That is a determination to put it right. That's not self-righteousness, a defending of themselves, but clearing themselves, putting it right. Which I expect meant distancing themselves from the, the person or the people who were dissing Paul. There were people dissing Paul and they, they, they'd won the church over. And it, to, to, to clear themselves means to, to put those people out of fellowship, to distance themselves from them and say, no, we're loyal to Paul. What indignation against this wrong. What alarm, frightened by what had happened. Longing to put things right. Longing to see Paul. Concern, readiness to see justice done. They changed At every point, he says, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Just like King Josiah in our first reading. I was glad Aaron was reading it with all those incredibly difficult Hebrew names. But the gist of it is this, that King Josiah was one of the few good kings in the Old Testament. There weren't many, but Josiah was one of the really good ones. And he was a, he was a boy king, a bit like Edward VI, really. Well, probably not very like Edward VI, but he was a boy. In that sense, he was like Edward VI. Um, and, and, and they were doing stuff with the temple building, and they came across the book of the law. I don't quite know which bit of the book of the law it was, but part of, part of the Old Testament. And when they'd blown the dust off it, it's a sign of how bad things had gone. Um, you know, one of the civil servants said, Your Majesty, we found a book. And they blew the dust off it and they read it. And they found it was really uncomfortable. It made, it made godly King Josiah tear his clothes. Because he realized he'd messed up big time and the nation had messed up big time and they weren't doing the right thing. And they changed. Well, he did anyway. I'm not sure the rest of them did. And Paul says, that's the kind of thing that happened with you. It was a godly, um, a sorrowing repentance in response to an apostolic rebuke. And so he says, verse 12, I, I wrote to you, it wasn't on account of the one who did the wrong particularly, or of the injured party, which was probably Paul himself. But the reason I wrote verse 12 was that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. In other words, I had to rebuke you for you to realize that in your heart of hearts you were loyal to me and you loved me and you loved the apostolic truth I brought to you, the gospel, and then you would come back to me in godly Sorrow, And Paul says, I'm thrilled. And when a pastor or an apostle or a church leader is thrilled to see sorrow that leads to repentance, it's an echo of God's joy. More joy, says the Lord Jesus in Luke 15, over one sinner who repents. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. When, when, when any of us turn round and we say, no, I can see that I'm going the wrong way. I can see that I'm wrong about this. Happens at the beginning of the Christian life. I can see that I was living for myself in God's world. I need to turn around. Happens during the Christian life. I can see that I was going astray. I can see that I was wrong. I can see that the Bible is right. And when that happens, there's joy in heaven. And that's the joy that Paul talks about here. And then at the end, there's a, a little, almost a postscript, really, which I've called a, a trembling obedience to apostolic authority. So Paul says we're encouraged in verse 13, 
And then he says, in addition to our own encouragement, you know, Paul's encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. You know, sometimes you go and see somebody or you're with people and they drain you. Sometimes you're with people and they refresh you. You go away with a spring in your step. Titus had visited Corinth expecting to be drained, expecting it to be a miserable visit, expecting to come away needing six months' recuperation and a sabbatical to recover. Instead of which he came away refreshed with a new spring in his step. Um, Because, Paul says, verse 14, I boasted to him about you. So Paul said to Titus, don't worry about going to Corinth, they're a great lot. They're in good form spiritually, it'll be fine. And you didn't embarrass me. You didn't let me down. Everything we said about you was true. What we boasted about you to Titus has proved to be true. And he's thrilled and he's, he's got great affection for you, verse 15, when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. Now here's the thing, Titus wasn't an apostle. But he came with the teaching and the authority of Paul the Apostle. And when he did so, the Corinthians bowed before his teaching, not before him personally, but before his teaching with fear and trembling. So here's what it is today. You do need to test what those of us on the preaching team speak from the front Meeting by meeting. You do need to to look at your Bibles and see if what we're saying is in the Bible. You don't want to just take it because I or any of us on the preaching team say so. You want to look at the Bible and see if it is. But if you can see that it is in the Bible, then you need to respond and I need to respond with fear and trembling. That is to say a, a deep seriousness. I can see that this is right. And I need to obey. I need to change. If appropriate, I need to be sorry for ways in which I can see that I've drifted. I need to resolve that by the end of 2015, in God's grace, I'll be a different person, that we'll be a different church because of that godly sorrow. So you do need to test it. You do need to see if it is in the Bible. But if it is then just as the Corinthians received Titus with fear and trembling, so you and I need to do the same. So how can you tell a church that is in good shape? Paul says in verse 16, I've got complete confidence in you. How can you tell that? And the mark that this passage gives us is sorrow. So look for a church where in conversation, when you begin to get to know Christian people in the church, one of the things that marks them, not the only thing of course, but one of the things that marks them is sadness. When they can see, when we can see, when I can see that I, we have drifted from God's way and God's truth. A sorrow that leads to change. Find that sort of a church. Never mind if the building's not in great nick, if the staff team has leaves something to be desired, if the budgets aren't quite as wonderful as all that. Never mind if, if the musicians sometimes have a bad day. These kinds of things are less important. If there's that godly sorrow that leads to repentance, 
amongst a group of men and women, that's the church to be at. <laughs> that's the church to join and to, to share with that. It's a paradoxical mark, isn't it? I think I shall write to Mark Dever in the States and say, why don't you have a tenth mark, which is sorrow? But then we'll find some more, and it'll gradually grow, and it'll cause great confusion. After a few years, it'll be 17 marks of a healthy church. But that's the one for today, a godly sorrow that leads to change and leaves no regret. Let's be quiet for a moment. I'll pray. God, our Father, we ask that we too might be sorrowful as you intend with a sorrow that leads to change. In Jesus' name, amen.